What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to Hackrack. I'm Jed Wolpaw and we are back with two of my favorite people, Kara Segna and Hassan Reyes, two of our fantastic regional anesthesiologists here. Listeners will remember they were here before. Kara and Hassan, we talked about uh, upper extremity blocks. Kara is our uh, director of the Regional Anesthesia Fellowship here. Hassan is the director of regional anesthesia for Johns Hopkins Anesthesiology and... Since we talked about upper extremity blocks last time, we are going to do lower extremity blocks. Now, lower extremity blocks, big, uh, large topic, and so we're going to divide it into two. And today, we are going to do ankle blocks and sciatic nerve blocks and the various types of blocks that fall under that. I'm excited. I hope you are, too. Hassan and Kara, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So good to be here. We're very excited. Great to be here, Jed. Thanks for having us back. So remember, listeners, you can engage in the conversation on the website at ACRAC.com. On Twitter, we're at ACRAC Podcast. I'm at Jay Wolpaw. And you can go to the new ACRAC Facebook group where you can take part there as well. All right. Let's jump in. And uh, Hassan, what are we talking about and why? Thanks, Chad. So today we'll be talking about uh, ankle blocks as well as the sciatic nerve blocks and all of its various approaches today. Uh, these are very high-yield topics and are very often uh, testable. Uh, we've attached a bunch of images to help with visualization as we discuss these uh, blocks today. Um, and I think they'll be really helpful for all of our people studying at home. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. So we will uh, post both references and images on the show notes at ACRAC.com so that if you want to uh, check out the images either after you listen to this, if you're out there running or commuting, uh, or if you're sitting listening to it and want to follow along with the images, you can do that as well. All right, so Kara, why don't you start us off um, maybe with ankle blocks? I know you guys mentioned to me before that you think, uh, having kind of reviewed the testing uh, literature out there, that ankle blocks is probably the most high yield. So why don't we start with that? Yes, so we do like to cover all kinds of questions and answers, specifically for the ITE, the written and the advanced boards, as well as the oral boards when we see that it's applicable. Ankle blocks are heavily tested on the ITE, written and advanced, not as much on the oral board, so I will be focusing um, a lot of our conversation about that. So first of all, the ankle... Um, the ankle foot area is all innervated by five nerves. You can perform the traditional ankle block, which is accomplished by four injections at the level of the ankle, or you can perform what's called a Mayo block, which is an ankle block, but performed in a field block fashion. Basically, you would form a superficial wheel all around the ankle, and it would kind of look like an ankle bracelet. These block techniques are typically performed landmark-based, but you can utilize ultrasound as well. However, with ultrasound, it is 
potentially difficult to scan around the bony ankle joint because this would provide a poor probe contact and create a distorted image. So most people just do landmark. It's also very, very quick that way. Great. And so why would one do an ankle block? So these blocks are very ideal for any surgery below the level of the ankle joint, basically midfoot and forefoot surgery, but also, which is really nice, can be combined with an ankle tourniquet. A great benefit would be that you do not have to perform a peripheral nerve block, such as the popliteal block, unless it is absolutely necessary. Instead, with the ankle block, you only need to block the nerve specific to the part of the foot that is being operated on. And as we've mentioned, attached to this podcast is a chart of the anatomy of nerve coverage, which I highly recommend you commit to memory for testing purposes. In addition, another advantage for utilizing the ankle block specifically is that the patient can be mobilized immediately after surgery while also having the benefit of the analgesia for about 18 to 24 hours. That's pretty solid. And so um, is, you know, you mentioned you don't have to do a peripheral nerve block if you're doing this and you know, for surgery on the foot or something. So is it as reliable as a peripheral nerve block? Actually, yes. The ankle block is very safe and has found to be just as reliable as the popliteal block and have an extremely high success rate. So you mentioned that there are five nerves that innervate the foot. Uh, That sounds like a very testable subject. What are those five nerves? All right, guys. So this might sound very boring right now, but please listen, memorize, rewind the podcast, listen again. Okay. So the medial aspect, the medial malleolus is innervated by the saphenous nerve. This is a terminal branch of the femoral nerve. And as an advanced question, because that would be a basic question, you may be asked what the roots of this nerve are. The saphenous nerve It is going to be L3 and L4. The second nerve we're going to talk about is um, the, actually the, the other ones are all branches of the sciatic nerve. So we'll start with the lateral aspect, the lateral malleolus innervated by the sural nerve. And that the roots of that are going to be S1 and S2. Next, we're going to talk about the dorsum of the foot, which is innervated by the superficial peroneal nerve. Those roots are going to be L4 to S1. Then we have the deep dorsal structures and web space between the first and second toes, and they're going to be innervated by the deep peroneal nerve L4 and L5. Lastly, We have the deep ventral structures and muscles and basically the sole of the foot. And this is going to be innervated by the posterior tibial nerve. Um, Key to this one, you are less likely going to be tested on nerve roots because it's all a bunch of contributions that range from L4 to S3. That's good to know. So of the uh, nerve roots, the one, if you can't memorize them all, the nerve to worry less about is the um, posterior tibial nerve uh, innervating the sole of the foot because it's kind of a mishmash. Yes. Okay. And as you said, there'll be images uh, on the show notes that will help uh, make this clear as well. Yeah, it'd be very helpful for you to look at that while you listen. Absolutely. All right. Uh, So are there contraindications to performing an ankle block? So as far as contraindications go, it's going to be the usual things that you see with blocks. It's going to be your patient refusal, infection over the site, edema, burns, and tissue trauma can make it very difficult to do this block. I personally wouldn't do that. Um, And as well, four out of the five nerves lie very, very close to blood vessels, which you'll see in the pictures. However, you can still compress it, that, that site, so it is still considered a superficial block. So anticoagulation will not be a contraindication for this. Great. That's really important. 
Is it safe to use epinephrine uh, if you're using a local anesthetic? Can you mix it with epinephrine for the block? So the literature actually suggests that epinephrine should not be used in distal extremity blocks, which makes sense. However, low concentrations of epinephrine in your local anesthetic have been used um, safely. The overall incidence of severe vascular complications after injection of epinephrine containing local has been estimated to be about 1 per 132,000 injections. All right, so that's pretty low. Um, I guess I should ask, you know, if if there was any risk, I mean, what's the advantage? So why would you use epinephrine? Uh, Why not just do it without? So the epinephrine will help have will help the block last a lot longer. So you can go from your 12, 15-hour mark to your 24-hour mark. Gotcha. So obviously follow your hospital guidelines, but uh, sounds like pretty safe uh, to do with a low dose of uh, epinephrine mixed in. Um, What would you say the main complications of the block are? So there are not many complications with the ankle block. It's very low, less than 1%. And if you do see a complication, it will typically present as a transient paresthesia, which is very common to other blocks as well. And it will resolve almost all the time, just like the other block um, complications, the other peripheral nerve blocks. Um, Complications can occur from doing the injection because you can theoretically go through the nerve or from application of the tourniquet, but it is rare. Local anesthetic toxicity syndrome, which, you know, last syndrome, is also very rare with this block, and they did some retrospective studies. And one study showed that out of almost 1,400 patients, only one had an intravascular injection, and then another series looked at almost 1,300 patients who received the standard and and modified ankle blocks, as well as some um, finger blocks, and only one had an episode of hypotension and supraventricular tachycardia that could have been related to lidocaine toxicity. Great. So sounds overall like a very safe block. So you've touched on this, but, you know, can you be a little specific since we've said this is very highly tested? What kinds of questions can people expect to see on their written boards or their ITEs about this? Absolutely. So as I mentioned before, this is very low-hanging fruit, so it is very well worth your time reviewing this. The, the questions are going to come in a variety of different ways for the ankle block. So one example would be, what is the cutaneous innervation of the interweb space between the first and second toe? Uh, the answer would be deep peroneal. What is the cutaneous innervation of the plantar surface of the foot, posterior tibial, etc.? Another way that you can ask questions with these blocks are to simply um, have a list and you have to pick the correct list that needs to, of nerves that need to be blocked in order to perform a, spe- a specific surgery. For example, if you were doing an ORIF on the big toe and you wanted to utilize an ankle block, which nerves would absolutely need to be blocked? And the answer would be deep peroneal, superficial peroneal, posterior tibial, and saphenous. Another way that you could be asked questions would be a stimulation question, like with a nerve stimulator. And that kind of example would be when you stimulate um, – I'm sorry, which nerve would you stimulate in order to produce toe extension? The answer would be superficial peroneal nerve. And then lastly, a very common question would be to ask the difference between um, what nerve does what, what's a sensory nerve, what's a motor nerve. And we found a really great way to remember this on open anesthesia. So if you take the five nerves and you separate them um, just based on the first letter of their name, superficial peroneal, sural, saphenous, anything that starts with an S is sensory only. And the other two 
um, tibial and deep peroneal are motor and sensory. So that could be really, really easy to just pick and go. That's amazing. I did not know that, but I love that. S, the ones that start with S, are sensory only. I mean, that's a fantastic little uh, way to remember it, Kara. Thank you very much. All right. Let's move on and talk about the sciatic nerve blocks. And we're going to talk about several within there. Hassan, uh, tell me about these. What do you want to start with in terms of uh, sciatic nerve blocks? Thanks, Jed. So overall, uh, we're going to talk about four different approaches to the sciatic nerve. Um, they all have their little uh, advantages and disadvantages. It's These blocks aren't quite uh, as well tested as the uh, ankle block, so you'll notice our format for today is starting from the foot and moving up the leg, um, just so we get the most uh, high-yield stuff first. Uh, but there are a few pearls, and we're going to go over those and go over the blocks. Great. So where should we start? So let's start off with the popliteal sciatic. Um, it's the most popular approach to the sciatic nerve block that, that we do, and you'll probably see in your residency programs. It's indicated for foot and ankle procedures, um, contraindicated by uh, basically the same things that a lot of our nerve blocks are, um, patient refusal, local infection, um, and then uh, anything that may inc- have increased risk uh, beyond our less than 1% chance of bleeding infection, nerve damage. We don't worry about anticoagulation, though, for this block. Is that right? Uh, So it's a little bit of a gray zone. Um, As far as this block goes, um, there's a school of thought that basically thinks that if there's a hematoma there from the popliteal artery, that uh, this area is compressible, um, and that's not universal. Some will say that it it is not compressible, and therefore we'll treat it as a as a deep block and okay. watch out for anticoagulation. So evidently, you kind of talk to your local um, uh, regional folks, find out what the practice is at your institution. Right, and um, here we we are uh, perhaps a little bit more on the aggressive side, where we consider it more of a superficial block. Okay, so uh, foot and ankle procedures, kind of same contraindications that we normally would think of, plus minus anticoagulation. So, what's the approach? So the main thing with the uh, popliteal sciatic uh, um, nerve block is, of course, a popliteal approach. It's in the name. Uh, What you want to do is position the patient in either uh, lateral prone uh, position or just have the leg raised on some pillows, blankets, or uh, I've even seen uh, devices specifically designed for uh, raising the leg. is and one better than the other, Hassan? I mean, if you had, you could pick. You know, a patient was totally cooperative and mobile. Would you have them prone or supine? Was there a better way? Is, is, it, is there one that's easier for the operator? Uh, I found that uh, in training residents, the lateral may be the easiest one to start off with. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, uh, even though my personal preference is the supine, uh, it's just that if the block takes a bit longer, your arm can get a little bit tired for trainees in, okay. the, in the supine. Okay. And also, in the supine position, uh, the ultrasound images is, is uh, inverted, which can be a bit disorienting for our trainees. That's right. I remember that from when I was in residency that kind of, you know, you move the needle what you think is deeper, but it's actually more superficial and it can be confusing. Right. And uh, trainees are usually confused by the where the tip of the needle is going. And uh, I usually try to tell um, our trainees that wherever you're holding the needle at the hub – 
wherever that goes is where your needle tip is going to go for this specific block. Okay. That's a great tip. All right. So it's obviously going to be in the popliteal fossa. You're going to have either the patient supine with their knee bent or they are going to be lateral or they're going to be a prone, whatever your preference is. Um, so what are some important things to keep in mind when doing this block? So as far as this block goes, uh, you're going to place your probe in the popliteal fossa. You're going to identify your popliteal artery, and uh, right above that uh, popliteal artery is the tibial nerve. Um, what's really important is not to go straight to looking for the tibial nerve because there is connective tissue in the muscle that can be very, um, very deceiving. So identify your vasculature first, then go to your nerve. And when you and say above it, uh, you mean deep to it? Is that right? Because depending on if you're prone or supine, right, it, above could be below or below. Right. I apologize. Yeah. So basically, um, if you're in the supine view, it would be uh, above the nerve, but it's actually deep to the artery. That's correct. Okay. So the nerve is deep to the artery. So you're saying find the artery, mm-hmm. and then you should be able to find the nerve deep to that. Yes. Okay. All right. So, Hassan, let's say you found the nerve. You found the artery. Then you went from there and found the nerve. Uh, now what? So you found your tibial nerve, and now you'll scan more proximally up the posterior thigh. Uh, And you'll find that the common peroneal will join the tibial nerve from the lateral side of the image. Now, you know, we're going to stop here and emphasize this this has been on tests in the past. Uh, You'll be presented with an ultrasound picture where the only labels they'll give you are medial and lateral and these two nerves. And you're just going to have to know which one's on the lateral side, which one's the medial, Lateral is common peroneal. Tibial is on the medial side. Tibial, medial. That kind of rhymes. Not really, but, you know, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. We'll give open anesthesia run for the money. (laughs) That's right. All right. So tibial on the medial, um, common peroneal on the lateral side, um, and you're going to find where those two start coming together. Is that right? Right. And uh, that's called the bifurcation, and uh, most uh, practitioners will do the block right there. Okay. Um, and so you're, you've got this view, you kind of go back and forth a little, you see that bifurcation happening and then that's where you want to go in. And then if you're going to place a catheter, is that where you want to leave the catheter as well? Right. It's a great spot for a catheter. Um, and, uh, especially for foot and ankle procedures that involve prolonged, uh, pain in patient stays. Uh, and there's a good deal of, uh, muscle, uh, involved to help keep the catheter in place and, in an area where the sciatic is probably at its most superficial, um, you really want good visualization of that catheter that may be a little bit tougher to visualize than in a normal needle. And so all of those things makes it a, make it a good site for a catheter. Nice. And then I guess I should ask, what are we injecting? Uh, what are the options? Obviously, we could do something like lidocaine. We could do bupivacaine, mm-hmm. ropivacaine. Is there um, something better than another, something you recommend? Yeah, so it really depends on what you want to do, right? And this is part of just being a physician. Is this block for a primary anesthetic? In which case, I may be looking for a higher concentration local anesthetic that gives me uh, motor uh, blockade, right? Or half percent bupivacaine. If we're looking for postoperative analgesia and we're placing a catheter, then the single shot doesn't have to last quite as long, um, and we don't need motor blockade. So you may go with a lower concentration at that point. Great. And then, obviously, lidocaine doesn't last as long as bupivacaine or ropivacaine. That's right. That's okay. right. Um, and we talked with Kara when we were talking about the ankle block, about the potential for adding epinephrine. Is that something you do with these with these um, popliteal blocks? So you can. And the uh, idea is the same, is that uh, basically your local anesthetic stops working uh, when you have 
when your vessels, just like a lot of other things, take up that medicine and it gets eliminated. Um, the idea is that the epinephrine will cause vasoconstriction and decrease vascular uptake of the local anesthetic. And so the same thing can happen here. Uh, the part where you have to be careful is that there is vasculature for the nerves themselves. And uh, for patients with conditions uh, where there's already compromised vasculature, like diabetes, in which we're doing a lot of these uh, amputations, and it's a very relevant topic for, for this particular block, um, I personally don't put in epinephrine because I'm concerned about further vascular compromise. Uh, but that's that's not a 100% um, um, rule, but uh, you have to think about those things as a physician taking care of your patient. Great. All right. So what kind of stuff here is testable, do you think? So the uh, biggest thing as far as the sciatic nerve overall goes, taking a step back from the popliteal approach, um, is actually not necessarily nerve block related. Um, it's actually common peroneal compression. And so what you'll see is that you'll have a stem involving a patient in lithotomy position, and you'll have common peroneal compression and foot drop post-op. Mm-hmm. The and as test takers have caught on to that, they, fo- they have found different positions where they're in strained positions in the OR. They'll annotate that in some way in the question stem. And, you, and from the result of foot drop, usually it's common peroneal. The last one I saw uh, was a patient going through a hip procedure. And the non-operative side, um, the patient had a foot drop mm. because the common peroneal nerve was compressed on, on, the, table. The, on the table. Exactly. Interesting. All right, so that's good. I definitely have seen those commonly from stirrups positions, mm-hmm. uh, but also, as you say, from, from anything. So good to keep in mind. All right, so that's one area that doesn't even have to do with the block. Um, other things that you might see on a test? Uh, so for more for uh, oral boards, you may be presented with a clinical situation where a patient with a difficult airway is undergoing a foot and ankle procedure. You may be uh, tempted to make the choice to do that case under block as a primary anesthetic. Now, if the examiner wants to take you down the difficult airway pathway, they're going to do that. That's what they're trying to test here to see if you're a safe anesthesiologist. And so most of the time, you know, I'd probably recommend trying to electively handle and prepare for that difficult airway from the get-go and use the block as post-op analgesia uh, on the actual exam. Sure. Or at least be ready if you say you're going to use a block as a primary and they say, well, the patient refused or there's an infection over the side or, you know, they'll put, like you said, if they want it, they want to make you intubate, they're going to do it. Right. And the toughest part is uh, having a patient who's oversedated with the nerve block and now you're in an emergent situation uh, with a difficult airway. Right. And the calculus can be a little bit different and the test can be a little bit tougher. Right. Good point. Okay. So that's one thing that might come up on oral boards. Other stuff? Uh, other things, just little pearls uh, that can come through. Um, if you're if you're struggling identifying a nerve or would just like to see this effect, uh, basically you can have the patient, if they're able to, um, move their foot up and down, plantar and dorsiflex, and uh, you'll actually see the nerves move up and down in a seesaw pattern. Hmm. Um, and that just helps identify. And put, I'm a regional anesthesia nerd, and I think it's really cool. Totally. So if you're <laughs> yeah. not sure if what you're looking at is the are the nerves, you can have them move their foot, and the nerve should move too. Yeah. All right, fantastic. So, Hassan, let's move on to uh, another either approach or, I guess, version, whatever you want to call it, of the sciatic nerve blockade, um, maybe anterior sciatic? Right, and to summarize this uh, approach, basically, uh, this is something that you can do for patients who can't move their leg. You know, severe trauma, um, uh, severe pain, um, and a sciatic nerve block would really help them. 
uh, they do have an option, and uh, it's an anterior approach to the sciatic nerve block. Now, this in my mind, I'm thinking the sciatic nerve lies in back, so mm-hmm. you're starting in front, and then you're kind of going all the way through the leg. Is that right? Yeah, and so you're going to go in between the anterior and posterior quads, and that's where you're going to find your sciatic nerve. Now, it's uh, pretty deep, right, on, on a lot of people. It's pretty deep. So your probe selection is going to be really important. Uh, the probe everyone's used to is the flat probe. It's called a linear ray. Mm-hmm. The curved probe can help you identify structures a little bit deeper. It's called a curvilinear. Yeah. So that, for example, I think is what we tend to use for abdominal imaging, right? If you're doing a fast exam, looking at the abdomen. Uh, we, we sometimes use the cardiac probe for that, but also this larger curvilinear probe. That's right. Okay. So that's what you're going to have to use because you need the depth. Right. Unless, unless perhaps you're in peds or a very, very thin patient. Okay. Uh, so... What are the ind- so I guess you kind of covered indications, right? So the indications are somebody who they're supine, uh, they can't really move, so you can't mm-hmm. flip them, you know, prone, or you can't have them flex their knee, or um, you were saying, Kara, they have like a like a cage attached to their leg. Yeah, so they've had like an X fix or something. For them. Yeah, yeah, great point. So if they've had an X fix and the, and you can't get to the popliteal fossa or something like that, this is a way to get to the sciatic nerve anteriorly. Okay, so that's interesting. And you mentioned, say one more time, Hassan, you're going between what and what muscles? And so basically, uh, depending on where you are, the muscles can change a little bit. Semi-membranosis, semi-tendinosis, but you're going between the anterior and posterior quads. Okay. That's where the sciatic nerve is going to run. Gotcha. All right. You're using the curvilinear probe, as you said. Um, we Kind of same contraindications as, as before? Anything different with this one? Uh, pretty similar, except uh, I think most people will agree this is, this is a deep block. Yeah. And so anticoagulation matters here. Okay. Um, it's difficult to suppress a, a, a hematoma there. Uh, your landmarks with ultrasound are going to be your femur, your femoral neurovasculature, and your uh, sciatic nerve. They form a triangle, and uh, if you look at your images, um, it'll, you'll see kind of what we're talking about. Okay, great. Um, so you're going to look for your femoral vessels. You're going to look for your femur, mm-hmm. and then uh, you'll the third piece of that triangle is going to be your sciatic nerve. Right. All right. And this might just be since you mentioned anticoagulation. You know, again, we could do of course a whole episode on anticoagulation, but sure. maybe just a quick review. Um, when we say we we care about anticoagulation, that means we wouldn't do this block in someone who's anticoagulated. And can you just give me just the brief overview? So let's say somebody is clearly if someone's on systemic anticoagulation. So let's say they have a PE and they're getting systemic Lovenox or they're on a full dose heparin drip. They're therapeutic. That is a no brainer. They can't get this block. Um, what about somebody getting, they're in the hospital, they're getting sub Q heparin 5,000 TID uh, for prophylaxis, for DVT prophylaxis. What do you need to, how do you time your block or can you do a block in that person? So uh, de- it depends on the type of block. And if we consider them uh, superficial or deep blocks, uh, the blocks that are at highest risk and where you really do need to time when a needle goes in um, or your neuraxial block. Sure. So an epidural, right. for example. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, and even when you remove a catheter, um, it's recommended that you remove the catheter, which is much less traumatic than a needle, about four to six hours after your last heparin dose. Okay. So four to six hours after the sub-Q heparin, which mm-hmm. is usually 5,000 Q8 mm-hmm. um, every eight hours. So you're going to wait four to six hours. Then you can remove the catheter or do a, a new block. Right. All right. Uh, or in this case, do a, uh, an anterior sciatic block. And then how long after doing the block or putting in the catheter or doing the epidural can you give your next dose of sub-Q heparin? So usually uh, there's enough clearance to uh, wait an hour. 
uh, for for most procedures. Uh, with this one, um, it's not at the level of a, of a neuraxial block, sure. certainly. Um, and so you may you may say that uh, well, with subq heparin, I feel comfortable here uh, proceeding with the block. So that's going to be but provider dependent. It's going to be provider dependent to a degree, um, because as as you said, there's a little bit of gray area in what we consider compressible uh, from a hematoma standpoint. And um, I would refer you to the uh, Azra app that we talked about uh, yep. on our last podcast. Absolutely. Um, and it's a right, it's a nice and uh, ready um, um, source just to see what the guidelines are. Great. And I think that's important, you know, check the guidelines to, um, to know what you're doing. And of course, your local guidelines and practices right. as well. And so, Hassan, that was such a good suggestion that we just looked it up. Uh, Kara pulled up that, that amazing app that we talked about last time that just has all this at your fingertips. And sure enough, um, for deep blocks, of which, as you said, we would count this anterior approach to the sciatic nerve, it does, as we recommends, considering it to be like a neuraxial block. And so, as you said, waiting four to six hours after the dose of heparin before doing the block and then at least an hour after the block before giving a dose of heparin. Um, and so I think that's great. And then, of course, uh, someone on uh, Lovenox, let's say they're on the usual 40 milligrams daily of Lovenox for prophylaxis, uh, we would wait, I believe, 12 hours. Is that right? That's right. Okay, great. So important to keep that in mind. I just wanted to review that. All right. So um, what kinds of uh, stuff is uh, testable about the anterior sciatic nerve block? Uh, honestly, not, not a ton there. Uh, the biggest thing as far as pearls go for our listeners, um, if you try to do this block with your classic in-plane approach, it may prove to be pretty difficult and the angles are pretty pretty tough. So it's a pretty advanced block and also in the sense that uh, a lot of advanced practitioners will do this uh, out of plane. Um, and so... We'd say if you haven't tried it before, try to work with someone who has, um, but it is a nice alternative to some of the other blocks for a select group of patients. Okay. I'm guessing, I mean, I haven't, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't think I have seen this um, on the test question. doesn't mean it's not out there, but um, I think that if it came up, it would probably be like the indications, right? Like when might you do this, or they might give you the scenario of a patient with an X fix in place or something and ask what are the options or which of the following would be an option for nerve blockade or something. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense to me. Okay. Um, so let's turn to another approach. Uh, how about the subgluteal sciatic approach? So as far as the uh, subgluteal sciatic um, approach, um, this is great for patients who are getting uh, above knee procedures. Mm -hmm. That's where we'd use this instead of the anterior sciatic or the palpiteal sciatic. Um, uh, basically, your you're having the patient turn onto their side, uh, flexed at knee and hip. Then uh, place your probe uh, uh, right below the buttock, um, right in the middle of an imaginary line between uh, your greater trochanter and your ischial tuberosity. And over there, you'll identify your uh, sciatic nerve, and we'll be using that same curvilinear probe, that deep penetrating probe that, that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, in my experience, but tell me uh, if you agree, is that that probe, the advantages it gets you deeper, the disadvantages, things aren't quite as crisp and clear, so it can be a little harder to identify structures. Right, and so, you know, we're, we're saying so much about this curvilinear probe, uh, why not use it all the time? And that's the big reason, is that with the higher frequency probe, um, you're, if you're looking at superficial structures, your resolution is fantastic. Mm -hmm. You can really see that needle pop, you see that nerve pop, 
Uh, it looks like a textbook. That's what they're using. Yeah. Right. It just and it would be great if even the deeper structures that the curvilinear probe identified popped like that. Um, they just don't. Yeah. Uh, it works better than the uh, linear array um, at identifying deeper structures, but nothing quite gets you that same resolution. Great. Any special contraindications? Is this a deep block for the purposes of anticoagulation? Yeah, I don't consider this one a, a major gray area. This this one, I think almost everybody would say this is this is a deeper block. Okay. Um, we talked about the approach. Uh, any pearls of wisdom to keep in mind when attempting this? Uh, pretty similar uh, to uh, our anterior sciatic. An autoplane approach may be appropriate, um, but I think in uh, with enough with enough room and good ergonomics, you can uh, do an in-plane approach. And nerve, using a uh, nerve stimulator is pretty useful. Uh, with a nerve stimulator, even if you're using ultrasound together, uh, if you want to make sure that you're in the proper place, you can get uh, a calf response, muscle contraction, and then uh, foot plantar dorsiflexion because that's all sciatic nerve, right? Right. Awesome. Okay. Um, very testable. Yeah. Testable. I, yeah, you're, so Kara is, is saying that that's, this is a testable thing, and I, I've seen these pop up all the time of, you know, what you go in and you see this reaction to the nerve stimulator. What does that mean? Or you're going in to try to find the sciatic nerve and you see this. Is that, in, you know, what, where do you need to go next or something like that? Or what would you expect to see? So you would expect to see, you said, calf contraction. Calf contraction and hopefully uh, foot plantar and dorsiflexion. Okay. Great. So if you're using the nerve stimulator, that's what you'd expect. Um, how about, is this a good place for a catheter if you need to leave a catheter in? And so a lot of times uh, we'll use this block for above-knee amputations. And for post-op pain control, this is a really good spot for a catheter. Great. Yep. Um, all right. And so uh, the last approach, I think, would be we just talked about subgluteal would be transgluteal. Is that right? Yeah. So for this one, we're just traveling a few centimeters up. And, we're, you know, the name says transgluteal, going through the uh, the gluteus maximus, it's, uh, through the buttock. And um, essentially you say, well, we're only a few centimeters above the subgluteal. Why bother with this one? Because um, the sciatic nerve may also be a little bit tougher to identify in our ultrasound. You, you know, say... Hassan, what's the point? Uh, the point is that if you're doing this uh, block for as a primary anesthetic, uh, there is posterior thigh coverage through a cutaneous nerve that's more reliably attained through this approach that you're not necessarily always going to get with a subgluteal approach. Gotcha. And so if you go think back to our above-knee amputation patient we were just talking about, a lot of our above-knee amputations have many other comorbidities and a primary block uh, would be fantastic. You don't have to give a lot of sedation and deal with a lot of those other comorbidities. This is maybe a good choice. Okay. So for like a tourniquet, you want to be able to get that cutaneous coverage and this is going to get it for you where that subgluteal might not. Exactly. And you say, well, what's what's the big deal with that? If you're not getting that tourniquet coverage, then the amount of sedation for perhaps an OSA patient with cardiac comorbidities who often get above the amputations, uh, that amount of sedation has to go up and now you are increasing risk. Great. All right. That's super helpful. Um, all right. So we've covered some great stuff. Uh, guys, any final words uh, in conclusion before we sign off? Yes. Um, Hassan, can you please talk about the landmarks of the transgluteal approach that it's also a very testable mm. um, topic? Yeah, sure. landmarks. Tell me about the landmarks of that approach. 
so the uh, landmark approach to this uh, to this block is one of those classic regional anesthesia approaches, and I think that's why it's um, being tested. Um, it's the Labatt uh, posterior approach. Essentially, you draw a line from your PSIS, your posterior superior iliac spine, to your greater trochanter, um, and this is with the patient laying on their side. And then from the greater trochanter, you draw another line um, to um, the uh, sacral hiatus. Uh, and you use that triangle uh, to as a basically the general area where the sciatic nerve is traversing and use that as your area to start stem. Right. Those three landmarks could be something testable to remember. Yeah, great. So those are three important landmarks, could be tested um, in terms of where to start or where you would put your stimulator. Um, Okay, super helpful. All right, guys, uh, any final concluding thoughts? Um, Yes. So, again, very um, testable information. Um, These, as we said, are kinds of questions that um, are either hit or miss, low-hanging fruit, and according to open anesthesia, the questions on um, nerve roots were only answered correctly about 36% of the time, and that was back in 2008. And then um, the dermatomes in 2016 had a 74% pass rate, which is really high, but that is still 25% of residents just missing this because they didn't review it. So right. please, please um, don't miss out on this. these very easy points. Yeah, great point. All right, Hassan, any last words of wisdom? Uh, I would just say, you know, um, we talked about a lot of blocks today. Some of them are more advanced blocks. Um, Always just keep your patient in mind, and if you're just starting off new, try to find someone who has some uh, experience with these and always keep learning. And uh, even beyond the testable subjects we talked about here, really take a look at our pictures, really interested in those, and um, I think they're just terrific options for our patients. Awesome. All right. Now is the part of our podcast where we do random recommendations, anything unrelated to medicine that you are, I guess it could be related to medicine, but that's on your mind that you've read that you're going to be doing this weekend that you want to recommend for people who might be looking for something just to relax, unwind. What will you be thinking about? What do you recommend others? Check out who wants to go first. I do. All right. We're going to start with Kara. All right, everybody. So um, I think it's really important to get out, whether you're with your family or with your friends or by yourself, just to get a little mental break. Um, This past weekend, I went to the Maryland State Fair. I got to try a whole bunch of really cool fair foods that people just made up. So that was fascinating. Totally. And I got to see a lot of different types of livestock and cow, beautiful cow competitions. It was really interesting. And next weekend, we're going to go to the Renaissance Festival for Pirate Weekend and just yell yar at everybody. It's going to be fun. Sounds amazing. (laughs) Um, Yes. And if you're not in Maryland, um, I'm sure your state has a state fair as well. And they tend to be a lot of fun. I was in the ICU all weekend and couldn't go, but have gone in years past. And it is definitely a blast. Um, Hassan, what about you? Uh, I've actually found that the my favorite things to do are just just relax. Uh, it's a little bit uh, different, and then um, I really take Friday evenings to sort of reset for the upcoming week and figure out what we want to do. And my wife and I, we have two two young girls, but it's nice to have some time together and just pick a day where we we just do maybe follow Kara's advice. Totally. And that's, that's been great for us. I think that's 
Fantastic. Um, and mine is, if you guys haven't seen this, um, the it was highlighted in the New York Times, but it's an article from The Medium. Um, if you haven't checked that out, it's medium.com. Uh, but it's called The Near Crash of Air Canada Flight 759. And I just stumbled upon this, but it is an absolutely insane story about what was almost one of the worst disasters in aviation history and ended up being no disaster at all. But it is essentially, and you'll have to check it out, but uh, in, in 2017, an Air Canada flight almost land, coming into land at San Francisco, almost landed on top of two or three other planes that were sitting, getting ready to take off. Wow. And at the last minute, due to a variety of, of people and uh, being kind of uh, extra vigilant, um, it was avoided, and they didn't they didn't actually crash, and nobody got hurt. But it was literally they did the math and figured out, kind of like broke it down. They were about ten feet away wow. from the crash at the time that the plane went back up into the air, and so it's pretty crazy. And it really and so you think, oh, that you know must have been. I mean, how could that possibly happen? And it, when you read the article, it talks about how basically this was just a complete system failure. The system was designed so poorly. Uh, that this was set up in a way that nobody was really nobody screwed up big time. It wasn't any individual screw up. It was the system failing, and it almost resulted in hundreds and hundreds of deaths. Uh, thank goodness it did not. But I recommend checking it out. Um, again, it is the near crash of Air Canada Flight 759 on the Medium, and uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. All right, Kara and Hassan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much, Jen. Yeah. All right, that was fantastic. Learned a lot. Great review. This stuff is really high yield for the boards. I think you're going to get a lot out of this just by listening, but uh, if you want to go back and review the images uh, on the show notes, check them out at ACRAC.com. Um, let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. Leave a comment so everyone can see what you have to say. You can also join the conversation at the Facebook page. Go to the ACRAC Facebook page, join, check it out, leave a comment there. And, of course, on Twitter, at ACRAC Podcast, and I'm at Jay Walpaw. Uh, let us know what you think. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference. We really appreciate it. You can also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC and make a donation there. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Big thanks to our intern, Kimia Kashkuli, who is doing an amazing job helping out with the social media stuff and preparing for some future episodes. And, of course, to Brian Park for doing the outlines for some of the shows that you see popping up. Uh, big thanks to Dr. Dennis Quo for the original ACRAC music. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC podcast and Drs. Segna and Reyes, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.